Let's uh, continue talking about 20th century Jerusalem. We have a few slides left, then we'll transition to 21st century Jerusalem, which is basically the last 10 years. I showed you this here. This is Zion Gate. You've seen this picture a lot, but these are actually bullet holes as part of the Six-Day War, trying to take um, trying to take part of the old city, at least. Um, I showed you this slide. I wanted to spend too much time on it, but it does show you kind of the idea of there was the War of Independence in 48. You should know that. There was a six-day war in uh, 67, and everything that we've been dealing with, uh, usually in the modern peace process, deals with either the six-day war in 67, or the formation of the state, the Arab-Israeli war, or the war of independence, whatever your point of view is. And here you can see kind of within uh, a 100 square mile area of the old city of Jerusalem. So there's West Jerusalem, obviously, but there's also all kinds of settlements these are, these are one of the big issues uh, with regard to Palestinians basically not wanting the Israelis to build Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem. And there's lots of them going in and around, because this would all be considered, of course, the West Bank. Right? The West Bank is like a kidney bean that comes in and wraps right around Jerusalem. Um, some other things you should know. Uh, uh, I mentioned, I had, I had discussed last week <coughs> We need to be very careful, I feel, when you start labeling people terrorists. Um, as we've seen in this class, there have been uh, times where Jews went in and took Jerusalem from people who already lived there, where Muslims went in and took Jerusalem from people who already lived there, when Christians went in and tried to take Jerusalem from people who already lived there. There is no innocent party on this. Likewise, we talked about how um, when you have an army, and you go to war, that's considered war. But when you don't have an army or you aren't a state, a lot of times those people are considered terrorists, right? So I'm sure the British considered American rebels terrorists until they won and then they had a state. I can't help but think that some people who are fighting for statehood, like the Israelis were doing after the end of the British mandate, or like many Palestinians are doing today, see themselves as freedom fighters, not necessarily as terrorists. That said, Whenever you target civilians intentionally to terrorize, I think that is overt terrorism. And that's bad. And I don't want to see that. I don't want to see any killing in the name of God. I don't want to see any killing at all. But when you target civilians and you hide behind civilians, that is when, I, at least me personally, I draw that line between we're fighting for a larger battle and we're terrorists. Now, you might not agree, and we can discuss that in a few minutes. But we need to be careful because the people who ended up becoming uh, the leaders of early Israel, once it became a state, uh, had also done things like blow up the, one of the wings of the King David Hotel to drag the British out. And then they got their state, and now they're the establishment, and other people are trying to blow them up. I'm not saying there's no such thing as terrorists. There are terrorists. It's wrong. You shouldn't do that. What I'm saying is you can't just pick one side and say, these people, this religion, are always terrorists, and these people are always good. As we've seen, if you haven't seen anything else in this course, all sides, all religions, all faiths are at least one point in their history guilty of this. Okay. So just be careful. Don't be quick to label people anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim. Don't be too quick to label a group of people terrorists. Okay. Just, just I, again, this is me trying to be even-sided. I, I care that you understand all the facts on all sides. Where you come down religiously or ideologically or politically is up to you. Okay? But I want you to know all the facts on all the sides. Yeah? Maybe I could ask a question there. What do you think about religion? 
I, we're, I, I've got a slide on it. I've got a slide on it. The question is, what do I think about what just happened? I've got a slide on it. And I'll tell you what I think, and I'll leave the camera running. And, and uh, like I said, one of the things behind taping this course uh, is not just to make it available to you, but is to make sure that everything I say and do in this course is not only objective, but fair. And it's not just fair and objective to you all, but fair and objective to anyone who else might see it. Don't think that I don't get emails from people saying, I saw your lecture and I disagree. Not from you all, where I have a great control, but people who <laughs> don't think that I don't get that. And I'm comfortable with that. And I'm willing to be very transparent and very open about the things I'm telling you. You can always go, I always, as an archaeologist, try to give you the evidence. You can go out and look it up for yourself. And then make your own decision. And all I want you to do is learn to think critically on all sides of the issue. And the decision you make is at least an informed decision. My job is not to tell you what to think or tell you what to believe. My job is to give you the data in 10 weeks. All the data that you can collect over all these years, credible data in 10 weeks. See, I'm so boxing again, so I'm going to keep on. Um, so the King David Hotel was blown up by Jewish, uh, uh, well, what were called by the British at the time terrorists until the British left. And then, of course, they had a war. Uh, and as we've talked about during the War of Independence or the, or the Israeli War, Jordan ended up in East Jerusalem, the West Bank. And Israel, the state of Israel, consisted of largely Western Jerusalem. Uh, did I show you this slide already? The demographics, right? Uh, in 1845, you have about 7,100 Jews, 5,000 Muslims, 3,400 Christians in the city. And this is, this is talking about Zionism. Basically, we've already seen this phenomenon. Jews are now being encouraged to move to Palestine, to move to this place that the British had previously controlled, and the Ottomans before that. And we can, we can see this, the number of Jews living there going up. 25, 35, 90, 120, 260. This is by 76. Okay? And we see the Muslims, they're increasing, but nowhere near at the rate that the Jews are increasing, which is evidence, physical evidence, of Zionism, of a migration of Jewish people to this Israel-Palestine area. We also see that the number of Christians increased, but more in line with what Muslims did. In fact, to what, at one point, they just combined those two, because many of the Christians living here in Jerusalem are Arab Christians. And when you start talking about nationalism, within, this is why I always distinguish between Arab Christians and Arab Muslims, because when you talk about Palestinians, they're not all Muslims. Right. Many Palestinians are Christian. Uh, uh, for example, one prominent Christian Palestinian uh, was uh, Yasser Arafat's wife, Suha, right? She was a very prominent Christian. And then she, some say, later converted uh, when she got married to Yasser Arafat. Some, some say that she never really did. So don't just think of Palestinians as Muslim. There's a lot of Christians. There's also uh, uh, Palestinian uh, Jews. You know, that would, would consider themselves Palestinian. Anyway, what I'm showing you is that the total number is increasing, and a large part of that number is increasingly Jewish, okay? which is statistical evidence of Zionism, or the phenomenon we call Zionism. Now, as we move up closer, past the Six-Day War, um, we have the first intifada. And an intifada is basically some kind of uprising. It's, it's some kind of a mass protest on the part of the people. Okay? You know what an intifada is. Um, 
Um, there have been a couple of these. In fact, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the, the leader of the uh, Palestinian National Authority, PNA, president, recently said that the second intifada, there was two of them, right? From 2000 to 2005, there was another intifada. Uh, he said it was a mistake. He said uh, it was a mistake, we shouldn't have done it. So this is a Palestinian leader talking about the Palestinian intifada. He said, but Arafat didn't want to step in and stop it, get in the way, it was, it was coming, there was really no way to stop it. Uh, but he said he wished we hadn't have done that because we were so close to peace. And this is a Palestinian talking about this. Um, so you've got this intifada, basically general unrest, protest, sometimes armed, against the Israeli forces that are occupying not only the state of Israel, but also the West Bank and Gaza, Gaza Strip. Um, you have uh, a Temple Mount controversy, and this is, I bring this up because it was one of those things that just stirred the pot, and it's an archaeological thing is they found a tunnel. And we, we looked down in this tunnel going along uh, the Temple Mount. And the tunnel begins in kind of a Jewish part of town and pops up in an Islamic part of town, an Islamic quarter. And so the fear was that it would undermine some of the Islamic shrines. Anytime you dig in and around the Temple Mount, anytime you dig in and around uh, a religious uh, thing, something religious, uh, it stirs the pot on both sides. Um, I've already mentioned that Jews aren't allowed <coughs> on top of the Temple Mount, right? It, it's, it's declared, uh, here's the sign when you walk up there. According to the Torah, it's forbidden for any person to enter the uh, area of the Temple Mount due to its sacredness. That's from the chief rabbi in Israel. So there's this kind of this general rule that Jews don't go up on top for whatever reason, and they, they stay down by the Western Wall, and the walk, or the, the Jordanians that control the Temple Mount on top, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the Dome of the Rock, they uh, kind of manage that up there. Until in 2000, candidate for prime minister, Ariel Sharon, uh, basically as he was running for prime minister, got a whole bunch of bodyguards and a whole contingency and went up and visited the Temple Mount. Now, there are people who dispute whether or not this incident was the cause of the Intifada. Some people say it was planned long in advance. There were other things that were going on that caused it. This is kind of the, the spark plug, or the flashpoint, pardon me. And he went up there on top, and uh, basically the Palestinians saw this as uh, uh, his, uh, an Israeli asserting his authority over what has traditionally been understood to be pretty sacred Palestinian or Muslim uh, an area. So he goes up there, walks around, just kind of does a visit, even though the, chief, the, the religious folks, don't, the Jews, don't want you to go up there. Sharon went up there and came down, and that's kind of the beginning of that second intifada. So these are kind of mass protest uprisings, again, just trying to disrupt the government, trying to disrupt daily life as much as possible. Uh, I've got a few pictures here of the tunnel. So here's the Wilson's Arch. We remember seeing the Western Wall, remember there's this little arch over here? But we know this, this is much deeper than it was. This used to be the arch way up high, but now it's right at ground level. If you go under the arch, you can actually see it's kind of a, a, li a library, if you will, or a place to hold songbooks uh, for people worshiping at the Western Wall. And then here's this uh, tunnel uh, the street, uh, under the street of the chain that you can see here. And then this is a place underneath uh, the Western Wall closest to the Holy of Holies. So it's a little niche in this tunnel. So anytime you start undermining, literally undermining, you start, you start digging underneath these holy places, both sides start to panic, and it causes 
uh, period, especially when you're charging tickets and making money, trying to send people under this tunnel when they pop up. You never know what somebody's going to do under there, and so that's kind of the rule. You don't dig under the Al-Aqsa Mosque. You don't dig. You're not supposed to dig in and around uh, the, the Temple Mount. And you certainly don't want people digging tunnels or exploring tunnels out of your site. I talked to you about the size of these Herodium stones. Here you've got this, this one stone. The reason that they like this tunnel is because they found a stone that weighed basically 570 tons, a single stone that was moved there by hand, right? to build. So this is, again, a testament to what Herod the Great had done when he built this retaining wall. But it sits under very sensitive areas today. A couple of other key players you should know uh, in this conflict was Yasser Arafat. Here he is. Um, and he founded, or, or was instrumental in founding, the Palestinian uh, Palestine Liberation Organization, commonly known as the PLO. Okay? Founded in 1964. Uh, and it uh, according to, um, well, first, the Oslo Accords formally, but it's said to be the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, at least at, at its time, later on uh, at one point. It was considered by the United States to be a terrorist organization until 1991. Basically, it was a group of people trying to stir up and fight against what they believed to be Israeli occup occupation of Palestine. Right? This is this is post. Uh, this is you know about the time of the Six Day War and after the Six Day War, the PLO became a big thing. Israelis saw them as terrorists. Okay. He was chairman of the PLO from '69 uh, until he died, until his death in 2004. So here you have, uh, you know, what, what would you refer? If he was called the chairman of the PLO. Um, very very powerful, and for the most part, most not only Palestinians. But most uh, Arab countries, Arab peoples, kind of look to him as their freedom fighter. He's, he's the guy that's going to fight Israel and stand up for Israel. And again, he, he died, I think, in his 80s, late, late 70s or 80s, uh, just in 2004. Um, at one point, he unilaterally declared the state of Palestine, the PLO did, in 1988, November 18th, which was significant, because keep in mind, we'll talk about this a little more in a second, but the Palestinian people never had a state of their own. They were occupied under the Ottomans, then the Brits came in, then right when they thought they were going to be the state, when they thought the British were going to help create an Arab state, you get the Balfour Declaration, and all of a sudden they're sensitive, or, or at least supportive, of the idea of a Jewish state or Jewish homeland, let's say. And then Israel declares a, a, its own state, and there's a ceasefire, and Israel gets a state, but there was no state of Palestine. So at one point, the PLO said, we're going to just unilaterally declare one. There needs to be a state of Palestine, which means you've got now two states living side by side, which we'll talk more about a two-state solution very soon. Uh, the Palestinian National Council was kind of the executive leadership of the PLO, which ultimately became uh, the PNA, the Palestinian National Authority. And we'll talk about the rise of, of these two in just a second. This is Yasser Arafat. He's a key player through the 70s, 80s, all the way up to his death in 2004. It can be said that he was the one who, who held um, all sides of the Palestinian movement together, those who were trying to, to make peace with Israel and those who were trying to fight Israel. He was kind of the one representative that, that was at least going to bat for them. And, and there you will have uh, 10 weeks' worth of discussions over whether he was good for the Palestinian people or bad for the Palestinian people. 
It's, it's just a, it's a big toss-up. Uh, we'll talk. We'll come back to him in a second. I think. Yeah. This brings us to 1993 and the Oslo Accords. Uh, I'll try to refrain from telling you right now what I think about the Oslo Accords, but I'll, I'll walk you through the facts that we know about it. Um, it's it's formally known as the Declaration of Principles on Interim Self-Government Arrangements, or the Declaration of Principles, the DOP. It was the first face-to-face -face agreement between Israel and the PLO, and it was in Oslo, Norway. That's why it's called the Oslo Accords. So you're finally, after all these years of warring and fighting and blowing each other up, and you're finally going to sit down and say, let's, let's work towards peace. And we'll do it in Norway, which is kind of a peaceful place, right? Not too much conflict. So we call it the Oslo Accords. It called for... Uh, a, the, the creation of the PNA, the Palestinian National Authority, which was supposed to be a temporary five-year authority, right, which would, uh, until the state of Palestine is created, and then it will, will give way to elections and a formal, a formal authority. It also called for uh, Israeli withdrawal from Gaza and the West Bank. Israeli forces have been occupying, and still do, uh, the West Bank, that is that area, East Jerusalem and, and uh, Judea, Samaria and also um, the Gaza Strip, which is over on the coast, uh, abutting the Sinai Peninsula, like down there, down close towards the, the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and basically they said, we, don't, we want our own place, we want to govern ourselves, we want Israel out of this area. Um, so they exchanged letters of mutual recognition, and here's what each side got. Up until this point, the Palestinian, uh, the PLO, refused to accept or even acknowledge the existence of the state of Israel. They would not accept that Israel was a legitimate state. And so, uh, like Hamas today, Hamas is a militant organization that actually won the 2006 Palestinian election. We'll talk about it in a second. They're actually saying, um, we do not accept the state of Israel and we commit ourselves to the destruction of this state, to the removal and dismantling of the state of Israel. During the Oslo Accords, the PLO recognized Israel's right to exist as a state. They acknowledged them for the first time formally, Israel is a state, which is what the Israelis wanted. Basically, you can't make peace until you accept that we're here and we're going to be here. Okay. And in exchange, one would think that the Palestinians would get a statehood of their own. Right? In exchange, one would think that in exchange for us recognizing you as a state, Israel would recognize Palestine as a state. But instead, what they got was the acknowledgement that the PLO, namely Arafat, was the legitimate and sole representative of the Palestinian people. So Palestine, out of the Oslo Accords, didn't get a state. They got kind of a roadmap towards a state. But what they got, what Arafat got out of the Oslo Accords was acknowledgement that he's the leader of the Palestinian people. Whereas Israel got acknowledgement that they have the right to exist in a state. Now, I was there in 2004. I heard a lecture from a senior Palestinian official who, as Arafat was, you know, we didn't know he was going to die at the time, but he was getting close to his death. Uh, and he basically said, uh, you'll never hear a Palestinian person say this out loud, but Arafat sold us out. They, most Palestinians do not like the Oslo Accords. Because instead of fighting for statehood, which is basically what they acknowledged in Israel, they, all they got was Arafat needs to be our leader. They didn't get a state out of it. 
And so he said, Palestinians won't say this publicly out of solidarity. They want to stick together. Right? Arafat's done a lot for us. But in secret, <coughs> Arafat had a lot of money uh, on, his own, on his own payroll. and had a lot of people that were loyal to him out of his own payroll. And so many Palestinians feel like they got sold up the river. So now, not only has he been, uh, not only been sold out by the Ottomans and the Brits <coughs> and then the Israelis and the Jordanians, but now your own Palestinian leadership is kind of selling you out. They didn't fight for what we really wanted, statehood and peace. All we got was a guy who agreed to be the leader, right? It was, however, officially signed, and this is the roadmap for it. In 1993, in this famous picture of the first time they've ever shaken hands, of um, Yitzhak Rabin, the, the Prime Minister of Israel, and the PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat at the White House. Now, <clears throat> you remember, you'll recall, uh, when Abdullah I of Jordan, King of Jordan, uh, went to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and it was rumored or thought that he was going to make peace or was in negotiations with both the Israelis and the British about maybe coming to terms and sharing this land, that a Palestinian assassinated, a Muslim assassinated uh, the, the Muslim king of Jordan because he thought he was selling them out. Well, the same thing happened to Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin goes home, and a Jewish ultra-Orthodox nationalist who, who thinks there should be no Palestine, and Israel should keep all the land to itself, assassinated Yitzhak Rabin. These aren't, this wasn't a Palestinian killing a Jew and a Jew killing them. These were them killing themselves because they felt they gave away too much. <clears throat> Among other things, the Oslo Accords, um, Article 1 state, the aim of the negotiations, the government of the state of Israel and the PLO, the Palestinian delegation, agree that it's time to put an end to decades of uh, confrontation and conflict, recognize their mutual and legitimate and political rights, and strive to live in peaceful coexistence and mutual dignity and security, achieve a just, lasting, comprehensive peace, settlement, <coughs> and historic reconciliation through a great political process. That's nice. And they agreed to it, right? Permanent status negotiations shall commence as soon as possible, but no later than the beginning of the third year of the interim period. And likewise, it's understood that these negotiations shall cover remaining issues, including Jerusalem. The Oslo Accords not only didn't get the Palestinians a state, but it didn't resolve Jerusalem. It said, well, we'll deal with Jerusalem later, which brings us back to this class. Right? Jerusalem is still divided between east and west, and it's still one of the big sticking points between a peace settlement. Can it be done? I think so. Is the answer to build a wall down the middle of Jerusalem? I don't think so. But that brings us up to the 21st century, the last 10 years. So give me two seconds, I'll change the slides out and we'll pick up the next.